Good morning. I'm David, one of the pastors here at Remedy. Our text this morning is John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. We're now in the ninth week of our study of the book of John, and we are already to chapter 3. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy eternal word. We come this morning to make much of Jesus to better understand what it means to be born again, to understand the work that Jesus did on the cross. Father, I pray that as we exegete your word together, that your Holy Spirit will help us not just understand the text, but apply the text to our lives. Help us to kill sin and be more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. I was reading this week about the number of celebrities that claim to be born again. It was actually a large number. There was um, a number of them that I think it's probably true that uh, they are disciples of Jesus. Uh, Other names, though, were quite surprising. There's no evidence from their lifestyle of regeneration or sanctification. They may outwardly identify with Christ, but their fruit demonstrates that they have not been genuinely converted. This isn't surprising given the easy believism that's taught in many churches today, teaching that implies that we can pursue our own life however we want and just sprinkle in a little of Jesus, that being born again is just one more thing that we need to experience just one more spiritual trophy. Last week, Scott shared that those who believed in Jesus in chapter 2 of John, um, it says that they believed, but 
they lacked saving faith. They believed because of the signs. It wasn't um, a sign, it wasn't a faith, though, which led to salvation. As God explained, they stopped at wonderment and did not progress to commitment. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What a tragedy to have false hope. To think that you are on the narrow path when you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was not interested in a shallow response or quick pseudo-conversions. He refused to compromise the truth or give anyone false hope. That's why the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. In chapter 2 of John, we see that there are those who believed in Jesus, but their faith was inadequate. In chapter 3, we'll see a specific example of one who believed because of the signs. Scripture even tells us he believed in Jesus, but his faith was not a saving faith. Today, we'll explore this most amazing conversation on an incredibly important topic. How to get to heaven. We'll recapture the biblical meaning of the phrase to be born again and its extraordinary significance for the Christian life. The sermon has three main points, each with two subpoints. First, we'll talk about how seeing the kingdom of God requires a new birth. Second, how entering the kingdom of God requires birth by water slash spirit and what that really means. Third, that eternal life requires that we believe that Jesus is all he says he is. Jesus drives right to the heart of the error of Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus something startling. Point one, seeing the kingdom of God requires a new birth. Before jumping into the conversation, though, the Apostle John does a masterful job setting the stage He tells us some things about Nicodemus, which gives us a lot of insight into the conversation. Point A, Nicodemus has impressive religious credentials. Verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John tells us five things about Nicodemus that we need to understand. Number one, Nicodemus is very serious about religion. Verse one says he is a Pharisee. The Old Testament has 613 commands, 248 do's and 365 don'ts. The Pharisees were committed to obeying every single command. In fact, they were so committed to obeying these commands that they developed additional commands based on the original 613 to make sure they didn't even come close to violating the originals. Nicodemus was as religious as they come. By today's standards, he would be the popular pastor or professor that everyone knows and respects. Nicodemus was the kind of guy you could count on to keep the law. You could leave your wallet with him and not worry. He wasn't going to lie, cheat, or steal. Nicodemus was serious 
about religion. Number two, Nicodemus was an important person. Verse 1 says, he's a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. The Sanhedrin was patterned after the 70 elders of Israel under Moses, plus the high priest who was the chief officer. They ruled under the Romans in all civil and religious matters. The only thing they couldn't do was put people to death which is why later they sent Jesus to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate to obtain the death sentence. Notice in verse 2, Nicodemus' use of the plural. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. It could mean that Nicodemus had some of his own disciples with him. Or it could mean that he was speaking on behalf of a group uh, that, of Pharisees that, that believed as he did. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that as a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus is like a senator and a Supreme Court justice rolled into one. Nicodemus is an important person. Number three, Nicodemus is respectful. He calls Jesus rabbi, a sign of respect. He treats Jesus as an equal, even though Jesus has no formal training. Some of the Pharisees were hostile toward Jesus, but not Nicodemus. He's respectful. To see number four, you have to look down to verse 10. It says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Number four, Nicodemus is extremely knowledgeable about religion. Nicodemus is the premier teacher of Israel. He likely had large parts of the Old Testament memorized. He's an expert in the 613 commandments. Other teachers would have come to Nicodemus for advice. From a human perspective, Nicodemus is extremely knowledgeable about religion. Number five, Nicodemus believes that Jesus is a teacher come from God. He saw the signs that Jesus performed. To his credit, he recognizes that God is with him. This is in direct opposition to other other Pharisees. John 9.16 says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is... Not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. Nicodemus has impressive religious credentials. If anyone gets to heaven, no doubt he thinks it will be someone like, well, him. Jesus is about to stand Nicodemus's world on its head. Point B religious credentials are insufficient to save. The very beginning of our text reads, Now there was a man. This phrase connects the whole discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus with chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, for his own part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Verse 1, now there was a man. So as we saw last week, many were believing in Jesus. But as Scott shared, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Their faith was not a saving faith. John states the general, then tells us the particulars. The one who knew all people now enters into a number of conversations in which he 
instantly gets the hearts of individuals. We see this in chapters 3, 4, and 5 with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the official whose son Jesus healed, and the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus knows the heart of all men, which means he knows our heart as well. This should simultaneously fill us with the fear of God and great comfort. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the heart of Nicodemus. He knows that he is one of those who believes because of the signs. John also tells us another important fact about Nicodemus. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night. It seems to be an important detail because it's mentioned again. In chapter 19, after the crucifixion, John tells how Nicodemus helps Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus. John says, in essence, you know, Nicodemus, the one that came to Jesus by night. And we're going, oh yeah, that guy. What is it that John is telling us here? Bible commentators are all over the place. Some say it was simply practical to come at night, after the crowds around Jesus had thinned out, after the busy day was over. Others say Nicodemus came covertly in order to not be seen or to avoid publicity under the cloak of darkness. There may be something to that. But since we aren't told the meaning here, it's helpful to look at other uses of the word night in the book of John. From those instances, it's clear that John uses the word to refer to spiritual darkness. Here are a couple of examples. John 11.10 says, But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. At the Last Supper, Judas receives a morsel of bread from Jesus, then leaves to betray Jesus. John 13.30 says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Whatever else it means, I believe John is signaling to us that Nicodemus is in spiritual darkness. As we saw, Nicodemus politely calls Jesus rabbi as an equal. No doubt, Nicodemus sees himself as being quite magnanimous, as Jesus was neither a member of the Sanhedrin nor a Pharisee. But in this conversation, Jesus is clearly the teacher and Nicodemus the student. In the first record of Nicodemus speaking, he says 26 words in the ESV. The second time, he speaks 23. The third time, only five words. The dialogue quickly becomes a monologue. Inadequate human knowledge, impressive though it may seem, quickly gives way to divine truth. Jesus knows all people. Jesus knows Nicodemus just as he knew Peter and Nathaniel in chapter 1, just as he knows our hearts. Ironically, Nicodemus thinks he knows Jesus. Look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus thinks Jesus is a good man, a good teacher come from God. He doesn't understand what we know. 
that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus is the eternal Word, the Messiah, the Son of God. That he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He thinks Jesus is a great teacher. As C.S. Lewis famously said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Because of his religious credentials, Nicodemus thinks he knows Jesus, that he can see spiritual reality. The answer from Jesus immediately goes to the heart of that error. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first of three double amens in our text today, translated in the ESV as truly. We saw previously that Jesus used it with Nathaniel back in chapter 1. Amen in Hebrew is transliterated into English as amen. Used at the beginning of a discourse, it means surely or truth. Used at the end, it means so be it. Jesus tells him he can't see anything unless he is born again. In spite all of his learning, Nicodemus has missed it. He's so focused on the legalistic external keeping of the law that he misses the promise of radical internal transformation. There's an application here for us. It's easy to slide into legalism. We must guard against it in our own lives. The Galatians were falling into legalism. So the Apostle Paul wrote to them, Galatians 2.16, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Bible commentator Matt Carter says, God is not interested in your personal remodeling project. We struggle to understand this because we don't realize how bad we are. Like Nicodemus, we think that our religious credentials will stand up to God's examination. Legalism often confuses justification with sanctification. Justification is an act of God in which we are forgiven our sins. We appropriate the righteousness of Christ, and God declares that we are righteous in his sight. It's just as if we never sinned. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus. Legalism confuses spiritual disciplines with earning God's favor. Spiritual disciplines like studying God's word, prayer, and attending corporate worship benefit us greatly in sanctification. 
But legalism creeps in when we think that we are justified before God because of spiritual disciplines. Scripture tells us that we do not have a righteousness of our own. In Romans 3.10, Paul quotes from Psalm 14. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Religious credentials are insufficient to save. Point two, entering the kingdom of God requires birth of water slash spirit. In verse 3, Jesus says that without the new birth, a person cannot see the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God is used 50 times in the synoptic gospels, but it only occurs twice in the book of John. In verse 3 and verse 5 of our text, John talks more instead about eternal life. To a Jew like Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age. It's to experience eternal life. To see the Messiah rule on David's throne forever. Nicodemus has no problem understanding the phrase, the kingdom of God. It's the concept of being born again that confused him. Point A, we must be begotten from above. Let's look at that phrase, born again, in verse 3, to understand why Nicodemus is so confused. The Greek verb translated is born is genenao. It's used of both the father to beget and the mother to give birth to. The common element here is to be created again or to be regenerated. Seeing the kingdom of God requires regeneration, begetting by the Spirit of God. In the ESV, there's a footnote. If you have an ESV, you'll see it there. Um, in the word again in verse 3, it says, quote, or from above. The Greek is purposefully ambiguous and can mean both again and from above. As John tells us, there is a lot of material to choose from. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In choosing this material, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chooses examples of a literary device called the misunderstood statement. Jesus says something to someone which is misunderstood, thus giving Jesus a further opportunity to clarify what he really meant. We see this with Nicodemus's misunderstanding of the new birth as a second physical birth. In chapter 4, we'll see the Samaritan woman's misunderstanding of living water as drinkable water. The Greek word for again in verse 3 and in verse 7 is anathen. As we saw from the ESV footnote, it means both again and from above. Nicodemus deliberately chooses to interpret anathen as meaning that a man must be born a second time instead of the alternate meaning begotten from above. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus clarifies the misunderstood statement without using the word anathen, which has two possible interpretations. Verse 5 reads, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This time, see the kingdom of God is replaced with the even stronger enter the kingdom of God. But the key change here is the phrase, 
born again is replaced with born of water and the spirit. Bible commentators have many different things to say about the phrase born of water and the spirit. There are at least three schools of thought. The first is that there are two births here. Jesus is saying you must be born naturally and spiritually. Proponents of this view see water as meaning amniotic fluid, which flows from the womb just before childbirth. This is what I always heard growing up. In fact, it's what I believed until I really started studying this passage in depth about a month ago. This view is possible, but not without its problems. There are no other sources which support the view that water is referring to amniotic fluid. D.A. Carson says, there are no ancient sources that picture natural birth as from water. The second school of thought is that water refers to baptism. Again, this interpretation has its difficulties. Nicodemus could not have known about Christian baptism, which came later. If the reference is to John the Baptist's baptism, this was soon to be replaced with Christian baptism. Remember, in Acts 18, Apollos only knew the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside to explain the way of God more accurately to him. Also, that interpretation would seem to be saying that baptism is a requirement to enter the kingdom of God. This is clearly not the teaching of Scripture. Baptism is not salvific. The third school of thought is that the phrase born of water in the spirit refers to one spiritual birth. Many Bible commentators support this view. It's based on three factors. First, the expression born of water in the spirit in verse 5 is parallel to anathen in verse 3. Jesus is restating the truth without using the word anathen. So it's a different way of saying that you must be born again. You must be born from above. Second, look at the word of in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the spirit. It's used as a preposition and governs both water and spirit. The most natural way of taking this construction is to see the phrase as a conceptual unity. There's a water-spirit source, which is the origin of regeneration. Third, Nicodemus, uh, Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand what he's talking about. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? This means that we must turn to the Old Testament to begin to discern what Jesus had in mind. Are there any passages that talk about water and spirit? Well, yes, there are many passages we could talk to. Here are just two. Isaiah 44, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. So Isaiah is saying here that he looks forward to a time when God pours out his spirit. And it will be like pouring water on a thirsty, dry ground. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. D.A. Carson says, when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to renewal or cleansing, especially when it's found in conjunction with spirit. Most important of all is Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which is what we just read, where water and spirit come together so forcefully. The first to signify cleansing from impurity, the second to depict the transformation of heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. And it is no accident that the account of the valley of dry bones where Ezekiel preaches and the spirit brings life to dry bones follows hard after Ezekiel's water spirit passage. This is a really involved argument, so let me summarize. Born of water slash spirit means a new begetting from above. This interpretation makes sense for three reasons. First, verse 3 is made to parallel verse 5. Jesus restates the misunderstood statement. Born of water slash spirit parallels born again. Second, it makes sense grammatically. The preposition of governs both water and spirit. There are Conceptual unity. Third, it's an Old Testament concept that the teacher of Israel should have understood. Apparently, Nicodemus is too confident, though, in his religious credentials to think he needs to repent, to understand that he must be begotten from above. If you have never come uh, to God by faith, if you've never been begotten by, by God I urge you to consider what Jesus is saying here. That we can't just try to be good people. Our righteousness will never be enough. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must come to God by faith in Jesus, allowing him to transform us from the inside, to experience the new birth by trusting him to save us from our sin. We receive real forgiveness for our real sin by trusting a real Savior. Will you come to him today? I urge you to talk with any of the pastors or any church member about experiencing the new birth. Jesus tells us that to enter the kingdom of God, we must be begotten by above. Point B, the new birth is the sovereign work of God. Verses 6 to 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What he's saying here is that like generates like. Flesh gives birth to human flesh. Human birth produces humankind, but only the spirit of God can produce children of God. We don't become children of God by becoming better humans, but by God giving us a new nature. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other Old Testament writers talk about this. So Jesus tells Nicodemus not to be surprised. Do not marvel, he says. Nicodemus wasn't ignorant of the Old Testament, but he was blind to it. Verse 8 starts off, The wind blows where it wishes. Wind is a symbol of the spirit. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for wind or breath can also mean spirit. 
We can see the wind, but we can't control it. In the same way, we can't see the Spirit of God or control Him, but we see the effect. Wind goes sovereignly where it, sh- it pleases. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is not subject to human control. Rather, the new birth is subject to the sovereign grace of God. What John tells us here is a truth that is built on in the rest of the New Testament. Ephesians 2 tells us, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us to consider our calling, and then goes on to say, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We do not participate in the work of regeneration, the new birth is the sovereign work of God. Point three, eternal life requires that we believe that Jesus is all he says he is. Verses nine and 10, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? From Jesus's response, we see that Nicodemus should have recognized these teachings from the Old Testament. They were not new, But it's no longer that Nicodemus doesn't understand it. It's that he refuses to believe. Nicodemus came with preconceived notions of who Jesus is. But Jesus is so much more than Nicodemus imagined him to be. Point A, Nicodemus refuses to receive the testimony of Jesus. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Here Jesus speaks his third double amen of the passage. It's a declaration that I pray that no one here ever hears. You do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus has said that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. He recognizes the miracles of Jesus that they're a sign from God. He even says that no one can do those signs unless, he is, unless God is with him. So you would think that Nicodemus would believe the testimony of Jesus. But he rejects what Jesus is telling him. He presumes that he knows Jesus. He presumes that he can approach God because of his own righteousness. He presumes that he can approach God the way he wants to. How very like the culture of our day. People presume that they can enter the kingdom of God their own way. That they don't need the way that God has provided. That they can get to heaven on any way they they want. And that um, all that matters really is that they're sincere in what they believe. Here's the application for us. When someone responds to the gospel that way, have them consider Nicodemus. If anyone could have gotten into heaven on religious credentials, it was him. If anyone was sincere, it was him. But Jesus declares that he is lost. Jesus reasons with him in verse 12. 
If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. I told you earthly things, elementary things, things you should have already understood from the Old Testament. But Nicodemus refuses to accept the testimony of Jesus. Point B, eternal life is through faith in Jesus. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says that he has knowledge of heavenly things. In the next verse, he explains how he has knowledge about heavenly things. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here Jesus refers to his incarnation. His coming in the flesh is prophesied in the Old Testament. The second person of the Trinity takes upon himself a human nature becoming fully God and fully man. Jesus can speak of heavenly things because heaven is his home. He speaks with authority about heaven. He can tell us how to get there. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness is from Numbers 21.8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. God sent the poisonous snakes as judgment on rebellious Israel. When Moses intercedes for his people, God provides a way of salvation. Anyone who looked on the serpent set on the pole would live. The serpent set on the pole is prophetic, pointing us to Jesus. The words lifted up links the serpent that Moses lifted up to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Both provide salvation. One is temporal, the other eternal. Jesus answers Nicodemus' question, how can these things be by pointing him to the cross? The phrase, everyone who believes, further clarifies that it is by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross that we are saved. We get to heaven by being born again through faith in Jesus. My prayer today is that we understand the biblical meaning of the phrase, to be born again. That we understand that unless the Spirit of God does something supernatural, we remain spiritually dead. That we do not live our lives the way we want to, with a little Jesus sprinkled in, that we not fool ourselves into thinking that we're on the narrow path when we are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Our text today ended with Nicodemus rejecting the testimony of Jesus. Thankfully, we will hear about Nicodemus again. That's not the end of the story. We see Nicodemus in John 7 defending Jesus to the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 19, helping Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus. In chapter 2 of John, we're told that Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Perhaps in the same way, Nicodemus, when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, like the serpent in the wilderness, finally understood what Jesus had been telling him, that religious credentials would not save him, 
that salvation requires a new birth, that the new birth is only possible by the Spirit through faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, and that Jesus is all he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which tells us so clearly how to be born again, how to get to heaven. Father, I pray that as we consider your word, uh, that we would uh, live in obedience to your word, that we would proclaim your word to others, that others might know you. Father, help us as we um, uh, proclaim your word uh, throughout Rock Hill, that many will come to know you. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.